You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Over the last decade, the application of data is at the heart of every industry, and it's changing how businesses operate, including the fashion, luxury, and beauty industries. Both large and small brands are seeking answers to how data can help them understand their shoppers, become more agile in their supply chains, and create new revenue streams for sustainable growth. They're also using data to measure the impact of brand placements and mentions across different communications channels, including influencer marketing actions. My guest on the luxury item is Allison Branger, Chief Marketing Officer at Launchmetrics, a leading industry technology platform used by luxury fashion and beauty companies to measure brand performance and ROI. Allison is an industry expert and thought leader, shaping the way the fashion, luxury, and beauty industries bridge the gap with technology. Prior to joining Launchmetrics, Allison worked with major fashion organization IMG, where she was responsible for the digitalization of New York Fashion Week. Previously, she was also at Net-A-Porter, where she supported the U.S. expansion for the e-commerce giant. Allison was also on Luxury Daily's Luxury Women to Watch list and mentioned in Rob Report's list of 25 women changing the face of luxury. Welcome to the luxury item, Allison. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. Thanks for coming on. So I think a good place to start is sharing with my listeners what Launchmetrics is and how its solutions help luxury fashion and beauty brands. Yeah, of course. You know, at Launchmetrics, it's been a great journey. We've been working with more than 1,200 brands to help them make smarter decisions around their branding efforts using our tools and data. So I'm excited to share a little bit more about what that means, how we do it, and the insights they get from working with our tools and data. So I know you have this proprietary algorithm that I've seen mentioned called Media Impact Value, MIV, and it measures the impact of placements and mentions across different sources like traditional media, own media, influencers, et cetera, what launch metrics calls, I believe, voices. So can you explain what MIV is and how it's calculated? I think it was about seven years ago, we were working with the Council of Fashion Designers of America, um, as we do with most federations for Fashion Week. And obviously, Influencer marketing isn't new, you know, it's been around, even if I'm telling you this was five, seven, eight years ago, whatever it was, it still was not in its infancy. It had actually in the States quite developed, but brands were starting to invite more and more influencers to Fashion Week. Obviously before that, they were inviting celebrities to Fashion Week, but really the digital landscape was evolving and brands were asking us, but how do I understand, you know, the difference between what an influencer does for me, what the media coverage I get does, like how can I do something with all these different metrics? And the CFDA and Launchmetrics worked together and we developed a research report where our labs at Launchmetrics have been developing this concept, as you said, MIV or media impact value, which is this proprietary algorithm that came out of this research where we looked at, I think it was something like 800 fashion shows to see how brands were managing these different events, what KPIs they were looking at. And from there, we built an algorithm that essentially would assign a monetary value, so a dollar, a euro, a pound, to every post, interaction, or article. So if you said, hey, Allison, I want to understand how my show, you know, the DVF show performed, you know, how can I calculate all of these different activities that my team did, whether it was having celebrities or influencers or press coverage, um, we'd be able to give them this unified metric. 
that was called MIV. And essentially it would really just allow them to measure one ROI on these different activities, but also assess what their brand performance was essentially compared to other fashion shows. So if you look at the New York Fashion Week schedule, they could see how the Ralph Lauren show compared to the Diane von Furstenberg show to the DKNY show, um, or just how, let's say the same influencer went to three different events, they could use media impact value to evaluate the performance generated by that influencer for each different show or each different brand. And today it's really become the standard in the industry because it looks not just across these different voices like celebrities, influencers, media, but it also looks at channels like social media, online media, and print media, all with the same metric. So we're quite proud of it. And as you said, it's kind of something that you see in the press nowadays, if you work in the luxury world, I mean, it's become really the benchmark and standard for how brands are measuring their performance. Now, the pandemic drove brands to accelerate digital strategies to meet customers in e-commerce channels. And so how did launch metrics support these brands who all of a sudden had to turn their data-driven strategies into overdrive? I'm glad I like that how you led with that. How did we, you know, support these brands? Because it really shows that we've made an impact on the industry to, to be not just a vendor, but a partner. I think support has always been at the ethos of what we try to do at Launchmetrics. And the pandemic was quite hard, but also quite an opportunistic time for brands. I think, you know, the marketers of these brands were waiting for their moment to shine, I guess you could say. In any industry, there's always a hesitation when it comes to digitization, but what the pandemic really allowed us to do, not just launch metrics, but the industry as a whole, is really create so much digital change that, I I mean, I think they say with e-commerce, it was something like more change in the last three or four years years than we've seen in a decade. And really it was something that we saw also with the entire kind of landscape of digital transformation. One big kind of activity we did was everyone was launching sort of a digital type fashion show or a digital type event. And of course we rolled out digital tools for all of our brands to use, but one of the milestones or keystone projects we worked on was working with the, the Federation of to help them digitize fashion week. And I think, you know, when people saw that project and they saw how they turned Paris fashion week into this digital platform, they said, you know, if the French are going to do it and they can accept it, these like historic fashion houses and historic brands, then, you know, everyone should feel comfortable digitizing. So we're really proud to be a part of that project. And we're still working with the Federation on some other digital kind of enhancements and landscape changes in the coming future in this kind of new fidgetal world that we're all living in. So when the fashion shows were basically virtual, were you noticing any impact versus the live shows? I guess one thing, if we just think about, you know, how things were pre-pandemic and then how they were happening during the pandemic, what was most interesting is that um, the opportunity it presented to engage consumers around the world or even engage industry people around the world. So previously, almost if you didn't fly to that city to be at that physical fashion week, the brands, of course, tried in a way to take that excitement online or bring it to the consumers, but there wasn't as much momentum because there were so many people just focused on, okay, these 1500 people to coming to Paris, coming to London, coming to New York. Um, But we really saw that 
during the pandemic, you know, so many brands were engaging people virtually, whether it was, you know, calling in KOLs from Shanghai to virtually dial in or people in New York. So I thought that was really, really exciting. And then, you know, post pandemic too, we saw that, or even at the end, uh, at the end of the pandemic, when some brands were doing these digital shows, we saw that keeping the ethos of the digital, but mixing it with the digital actually drove a higher media impact value. So I think that's the biggest takeaway that we we know will remain post-pandemic is that you can't ignore that we live in this multinational global world and your consumers aren't going to always travel to be where you are. So you need to figure out how to meet them where they are, um, even if you're organizing a huge event in Paris or a huge event in London. So what are some of the big global regional differences when it comes to the power of various voices? Like, for example, do influencers have more impact in Europe than in China? Or in what part of the world does own media wield more influence? Well, I guess it's no surprise for me to say that KOLs are really leading the way when Mm -hmm. it comes to how marketers are doing marketing in China. Right. And 49% of marketers in China are are significantly investing also in social commerce, which I know here in the West is something that everyone's excited about, but hasn't really taken off in the way it has in China. I mean, here in the West, I think one thing that had already blossomed in China was the concept of owned media. So the brands own social media channels. And I would say that's had the biggest growth in the last few years, especially when we're talking about what happened during the pandemic. Brands realized that, you know, they couldn't just rely on creators to be that voice to their consumers. They needed to do a better job of activating their consumers through their own media channels. And I think it's something like 40% of marketing of marketers say that that's their best forming, uh, best performing voice. It's interesting. The landscape is quite complex and different in each market, but I think everyone takes learnings from each other. And that's why we know, you know, influencer marketing was kind of, post KOL marketing. And now the Chinese have moved on from just KOL marketing to social commerce. And now in the West, we're just tapping into social commerce. So it's interesting to see, you know, the baton being passed off from market to market. And if you just took a look at the whole entire customer journey, how have the voices that influence the customer journey changed in the last five years? You know, people started working with influencers, like I said, five, six, seven, eight years ago, um, especially in the US, it's probably one of the most advanced markets in the West for influencer marketing. And it was really successful. And I think it's still, you know, even when we look at our data, influencers are still such a key voice when activating the consumer, they have these engaged niche audiences. But the truth is, is the biggest learning I think brands saw in the West from the, the pandemic is that they need to take back in a way those relationships with the consumers that the KOL or the influencer is always going to be so key, but you as a brand need to make sure you're investing in your own content strategy, your own relationship, having more control over those touch points with the, the different customers, um, the different points of engagement with the different customers so that you have the right visibility to drive sales, but more than just driving initial sale to drive repeat sales. So I guess I would say too that um, brands need to be present through their own voice on many different platforms in today's digital landscape to be successful. 
So I wanted to touch on the fashion shows again. So, you know, the pandemic forced the industry to reconsider the fashion show formula with some brands dropping out and others hosting digital shows, presentations and out of the box formulas. So now that fashion shows are getting physical again, what does your data say about the relevance of fashion shows for brands? Because that's the big debate now is are, are live shows relevant anymore? I think absolutely live shows are still relevant. But as I started to say before, that brands need to take a multi-strategy approach. I mean, I feel like like a redundant marketer saying that, right? Everyone's like, it's a it's omni-channel. It's but the truth is, is that not every customer is the same. Not every strategy is built equally. And you also have to think about the different stages that your customers are in. So the fashion show is really interesting because it's this awareness piece. But besides like in the moment of awareness, you need to think about that product, the product being like the fashion show itself lives on. So for example, this was super innovative way back in the day, but Alexander McQueen hosted a show when he was still alive at the um, Louvre in Paris, where mm-hmm. he had a hologram of Kate Moss. Right. And I can't tell you how many times I've YouTubed that video. And so if we think about, you know, a strategy behind a fashion show, brands nowadays need to to actually think about, you know, how can I make this event live on besides the physical event? So a lot of times too, your physical event is a gateway to this marketing platform that you're going to use for six months, 12 months, 12 years after the show happens. Um, And the brands that are doing it the best are the ones that are are really creating these digital experiences. So for the immediacy, they're creating something that could live online and offline and be really successful, engage people in the moment. People are desperate. I'm sure you're feeling it, you know, in New York to get out, to be social again, even if COVID cases are back on the rise again, people feel safe going out. And so physical events are quite key, but then for long-term marketing success, you need to have that digital component um, and you need to have it live on. You know, we seen with YouTube specifically, you know, it's not a platform that of course everyone thinks of it it for fashion shows because it's a video, it's it's like one of the top video platforms, right? But you think of Instagram immediately to go see pictures from a fashion show, whereas YouTube gives you that full story, as I said, YouTubing videos to see like key moments, key fashion shows, key people that intended or participated in events. So really overall, these kind of brand experiences are becoming so much more important than they were ever before for engaging all of these different voices. And then all of these consumers around the world, both immediately after a show and long-term after your show. You know, these days we've been seeing a wave of luxury brands starting to ask streetwear designers to help them design their collections. So how does launch metrics measure the value of these newly hired creative directors and what they bring to the brand? I think one thing we help our clients do is really understand the landscape of what was happening with your brand before and what's happening with your brand now or after. Um, And that could be looking at a person. It could be looking at an activation. It could be looking at an activity. One great example, I don't know if it's exactly streetwear, but it's definitely bringing like a new category into what Burberry was doing, but I don't know if you remember, like Tishi took over a few years ago, actually, instead of just waiting for the show to launch kind of his new collection and 
his new branding and the ethos he was bringing to Burberry, he actually worked with a bunch of key voices. I think it was a mix of like celebrities and other type of model type voices to do that capsule collection that launched a few days before. And it was really, really interesting because Burberry, I guess you could say it felt more of a bit conservative before he came back on, like the brand really needed an update. Um, and bringing in the influencer voice was something they hadn't really embraced before. And so we we saw that just from this kind of more, like you said, like how the streetwear brands are really activating their consumer, consumers is kind of like um, very supreme-like drop. Um, they were able to take the influencer voice and the media impact value generated by the influencers from something like 20% of their overall media impact value to, to double it. So his ability to kind of think outside the box, to think about how other channels like, or how other markets or genres like streetwear were really influencing um, consumers and what was interesting about what they did in their activations and bring it to a historic heritage brand like Burberry. And we were able to see that all of like the star power he was able to drum up through these top names um, in their brand influencer activations really paid off. So for years, celebrities have been the face of everything from fragrances to credit cards. And today it's the influencers that have the power. You know, they've created their own loyal communities and consumers trust them more. And now we're seeing more luxury and fashion companies even upgrading influencers roles beyond just fashionable tastemakers to help them move closer to these new younger consumers. So what are some of the key launch metrics insights that luxury fashion and beauty brands should know about today's influencers it's a funny question that you bring up because I recently flew into London Heathrow and I got off the plane. I was walking to baggage claim and there was like a huge advertisement and Chiara Ferrani was the face. And I was just thinking like, oh my God, like the world has shifted that an influencer has replaced a celebrity for this brand yeah. wow. on a huge billboard at an airport too. And that's like prime real estate if you think about ads. Right. So I think you're absolutely right that... Um, that the world is different today and brands really need to think about how they, they leverage these different voices. I think what's interesting, um, and I don't think we really thought about celebrities like this before, even if you knew, like I'm thinking back to my days in Brian Park Fashion Week, if any of that rings a bell to any of, of the, the listeners here, but you had like amazing celebrities like Julia Roberts coming. And then you'd remember like the CW and all of the CW like tweeny stars showing up. Yes. And you had to explain to their agents, like, no, Julia Roberts is in the dressing room. So your person who's like 12 years old and no knows yet can't be in there. But, um, you know, nowadays there are just like in the celebrity world, which we never really categorized, I guess you would say they were B-list celebrities, but in, influ in the influencer world, there's tiers of influencers, right? So you have like the all-star, the mega influencers, the Brian boys, the Chiara Ferranis. Um, but then you have these micro mid-level and even nano influencers. So I guess the difference is unlike celebrities, well, I mean, it, it is the same for celebrities because you hire them for different types of roles, right? Supporting actress, then like stand-in person, whatever. Um, but for celeb uh, for influencers, their tier is, is more based on what they can deliver to your brand, right? So some people say these nano um, micro influencers are great because they have more proximity to their customer. And while they can't give you a, a large reach or maybe the medium impact value is gonna be quite low because their audience is quite small, that perhaps the conversion rate is going to be higher. 
Whereas if you're trying to create legitimacy or awareness about your brand or your product, it's better to work with a mega or an all-star influencer who like a celebrity, like who like a top tier celebrity can cast that wide net for you. So I think what we've seen works best for our clients and whether you're not, whether you're a client or not, the strategy I would always recommend to people is understand what is your goal. You know, if you're a new brand or you're launching a new category and you're not a new brand, you, you need to create the widest amount of awareness because you need to first inform people that, that you're selling something, right? Then after that, once you have this awareness, you have this legitimacy, you can start thinking about, okay, how do I create conversion? And that's where maybe I need, you know, even when I worked at Netaporta, one thing we did is we use, and this is quite big and we do it a ton with our clients in China is we use KOCs, So key opinion customers, which are kind of like these micro influencers, mm-hmm. you know, people want to buy a product recommended by a friend quite often. So if you've already heard about the product, you're just not sure if it's good. A KOC is actually the perfect voice for conversion because it's a trusted ally to tell you, yeah, yeah, yeah. This makeup is amazing. This foundation is great. Or this belly cream for my stretch marks. I'm telling telling you that because I have three weeks till I deliver. Congratulations Um, on that. Thank you. Um, you know, this stretch mark belly cream is amazing. It's magical. You know, you're more likely to buy it because someone you actually know used it. So those are really important categories to keep in mind or the goals and the different tiers. And then I would say my second follow-up that we've seen with our customers that I would share to, to the listeners is understanding the goal of each platform and what each platform recognizes and essentially will bring you the most value based on the voice you use. So what I mean by that, for example, right now, TikTok, we know is a trending channel. All brands in the luxury market are interested in somehow connecting with TikTok, but it's quite a hard channel to activate on because unlike Instagram, where you could probably just post feed images and even still imagery sometimes on your story and get away with it, TikTok, you really need to have video and it's quite challenging and budget constraining and time constraining to have so much video made. So the the number one way we see brands activating on TikTok is through creators or influencers. And in fact, in a recent study we did with TikTok, it was something like 70% of the media impact value coming from TikTok for luxury brands was generated through creators. So I think that's the other kind of key nugget of information brands should consider. Okay, I want to activate an influencer. This is my goal. This is the type of influencer I need. Or I want to activate on XYZ platform and then understanding what voice will help you. Is it your own voice creating the content? Is it an influencer creating the content? Is it a celebrity creating the content? Um, So I think those points are really important when brands are setting their strategy. Now, you were just talking about China before and KOCs. And Launchmetrics made a bigger dent in China a couple of years ago when it acquired top KOL analytics platform, Parkloo. It came at a time really in 2020 when the global luxury brands were kind of doubling down on China as consumers were actively increasing spending on luxury goods there. So since the acquisition of Parkloo, what have been some of the biggest KOL marketing trends in China? 
I obviously already gave you guys my little like preaching on the KOC. Yep. I would say even bigger is live streaming. And it's so interesting because I do remember when I worked at Net-A-Porte a few years ago, we tried to launch Nap TV and it was when Google was coming out with their own Google box. I think it was called, it probably wasn't called that, but, um, (laughs) and and it didn't work there. And it's crazy though, how strong the KOL voice is in China that everyone is obsessed with live streaming. Like I remember even pre-pandemic, pandemic, Louis Vuitton had these influencers and it, it kind of reminded me, and I probably shouldn't say this on a recorded podcast. Um, <laughs> it kind of reminded me of a QVC active activation. Um, <laughs> um, but, but obviously it was like famous people. So actually maybe if QVC started having someone like Brad Pitt trying to tell you you're beautiful and sell makeup, you, you would buy more makeup off of QVC. But really these live streamings are working so, so well because people want to see one, someone they trust promoting the product Two, they want to see the product in action. So there's a lot of kind of DIY um, or how to as part of the, the live streaming activation um, and, and they're working well. So definitely as social commerce starts to rise here in the West, we'll see a lot more live streaming um, and shoppable content on our channels as well. So launch metrics measures different channels, but now we're starting to see fashion and luxury brands move into the metaverse. How are you measuring the impact from virtual channels? The goal now still for brands is not just, I mean, the right brands do activations to create awareness, to create consideration, and then to create conversion. So our job at Launchmetrics is still to help them understand, you know, how did that activation, whether it's physically, digitally, or in the metaverse, really reciprocate in that awareness goal. Right now, media impact value is still something that's been a key metric, whether it's, as I said, physical, digital, or in Meadowland. So thinking about, for example, what Valentino did recently, we're able to see that just from the crossover featuring various character outfits and styles for for the players that they did for their gaming activation, they generated something like 2.2 million in media impact value, which is quite interesting because obviously creating stuff in the metaverse is expensive, but maybe not as expensive as, you know, inviting 2000 people to a physical event in Paris. Um, so the ROI for these types of activations are, are really, really quite interesting. And I think we're going to see a lot more as brands are releasing like in-game skins, seeing how brands are leveraging these different gaming avatars. So there's a lot of still publicity in the real world, I guess you could say, about these activations and brands are still kind of true. I don't want to say traditionally, but traditionally measuring how successful that is. So for savvy fashion and luxury companies, data has been the key to unlocking insights needed to adapt to change and to re-engage customers coming out of the pandemic. Yet the pandemic has exposed a major shortfall in data gathering and analysis across much of those industries. And the gap between data leaders and laggards seems to have widened. Have you been seeing more of an urgency among your clients to lean more into data collection and analysis capabilities? It's kind of funny you ask this question because we literally just released a report called the State of Measurement 2022. Hmm. And it's the first time we've ever done it. And it really is exactly that challenge that you're describing that nowadays everybody is data obsessed, but actually not, I don't want to say data intelligent, but not data capable yet. Mm -hmm. There are so many more KPIs. There are so many ways of measuring performance and success that 
there's no rule book or playbook on how brands should be doing this and what's right and what they should be looking at. Cause as I said to you before, even with the influencers, you know, what's your goal? What, what's the purpose of this? And then from there, I can tell you what KPIs you should be looking at. So this landscape is very challenging and complex. I believe the biggest challenge we've already started to help our brand solve is just how do they look at these metrics from many different departments and consolidate them into one view. And I don't just mean one dashboard, but how do they have one unified metric that allows them to understand, should I um, invest more in influencer marketing? Should I invest more in PR? What is driving the biggest ROI? Is it, you know, my owned media or my social media team? So I think, you know, at least at this point, people are saying, okay, it's true. I don't understand all the metrics and I don't know all the KPIs, but I'm ready to learn. And I think there's this eagerness and willingness. I think the biggest desire that we've seen in the research and the report confirms it is that people are quite excited about having a unified metric. And also what that means is if there is a standard in the industry, not only they can they can see what's working for their own departments and their own team, but then they can benchmark how they're working compared to their competitors. One of the most significant omni-channel evolutions that have emerged in the past couple of years is a focus on digitizing the high-touch experience once only possible in stores. From trying on virtual clothes using augmented reality as seen in the partnerships that I'm sure you've seen between Snapchat and Prada or Farfetch to Louis Vuitton's collection of skins for the video game League of Legends to Burberry partnering with Mythical Games to create an NFT collection inside the game's marketplace. Many consumers are interacting with luxury brands for the first time digitally. So given this shift, how can fashion, luxury, and retail brands unlock the full potential of an omni-channel strategy? You know, understanding your consumer is really key to creating these omni-channel communications on diverse platforms and really thinking about the goal and objective of each voice in each stage of that customer journey. In China, for example, they have uh, two times more touch points than we do. But interestingly enough, many of those touch points are digital and they're involving friends, family, KOLs. Even more interestingly, they still pre-pandemic or inter-pandemic when they most of the country wasn't in lockdown, um, still had a very high conversion rate in store. So they've done a very good job of marrying up all of these different touch points to really push consumers through the funnel to make sure that even when taking an omni-channel approach that there's continuity on and offline. Obviously it's easier. They have WeChat. So you walk into a store, the salesperson already knows who you are. I think what the opportunity here is to make sure that, you know, we're digitizing these high touch experiences, um, not just in store, but out of store as well and marrying up our customer data. I don't know if we'll talk about this or not, but I'm, I'm just thinking this is a really interesting point that, um, is the future, but the future is personalization. So if brands want to have this very luxurious omni-channel strategy, Mm -hmm. it also needs to have a very strong personalization model in it. So we're also moving away from a transactional model to a more conversational and social way of doing business. And the battle is raging among social networks to figure out which one is going to be the West's super app for the entire customer journey. How do you see social and conversational commerce evolving? 
definitely in the West, millennials and Gen Z view social media as their default channel for discovery. And in turn, their default channel when engaging brands. I think one thing that's been so interesting in the last few years is how many SMB brands have been discovered by consumers through social media. You know, if you spoke to me pre-pandemic, I would tell you that brands needed to balance how they engage with their consumers um, because the older generation still really didn't mind advertising. They wanted to be part of this like aspirational world and their consumers were, were part of that world. In today's world, it's all about, or today, now, even for that older generation, which was more a younger generation trait pre-pandemic, it was about like creating um, this community with the consumer, engaging the consumer with kind of thoughts and values and products that they felt really connected to them. So in this question of, you know, how I see social and conversational commerce evolving, I think it's exactly as we've already started to see brands leveraging the the channels that their consumers are on more and more creating content that really speaks to them. Um, Not everything needs to be product focused. I mean, I think that's why the whole gaming skins, et cetera, has actually taken off because it's a more fun, organic way of getting your product in front of the consumer, as opposed to, I think when influencer marketing came out, it would be, you know, like 10 influencers wearing a handbag and you could clearly see it was like a product push. But nowadays everything needs to feel more organic. The consumers that um, are following these different influencers need to feel like the brands that they're promoting are really share the same values of that influencer. So I don't know, I guess I would say trust and relatability are are part of, you know, how social and conversational commerce will evolve through voices like influencers or even a brand's owned media. So my final question, Allison, is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you can only have one luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air transportation or water transportation, or anything that requires mobile service so you can call somebody to get you off that island, what would that one luxury item be? I was thinking it would be amazing to have a like a solar-powered refrigerator. A solar-powered refrigerator. Well, it has to be solar-powered because otherwise I need electricity. So what's going to be in the refrigerator? It, right now, it would be nothing, right? I mean, it would right. be great if, if it came stocked with food. But if I was going to survive on this deserted island and I had this solar-powered refrigerator, then I could keep, like, well, I could ma- purify my own water and keep it cold. I could hunt food and then refrigerate it so that I would have it for days to stay, like, alive and nourished and healthy. So I could even take that pure, uh, filtered water and make ice cubes with it. Alison Branger, Chief Marketing Officer at Launchmetrics, thank you so much for joining me on The Luxury Item. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of The Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.